What's up guys? Welcome back to the John Summer Challenge. Today, we're in John chapter 2, finishing this chapter with verses 13 through 25. It is day 4. Well, let me take you back to last summer. Last summer, maybe some of you remember, I went to West Africa with a missionary named Monty Brewer. Now, it was a great trip. Lots of experiences and memories from that trip and lots of stories told by Mani, which was probably one of my favorite parts of the entire trip. Just learning from Mani and hearing about all of his stories and he would even tell me some really random and cool fact stories. One of them was about a king, the king of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Now the thing about this king is that the people loved him so much. They revered him so much, they respected him so much, and they wanted to do everything they could to please their king. They even had a getaway home for him, basically a vacation home for the king. Whenever he wanted some rest, any time of the year, any time, he could come unannounced and it would be fully prepared for him and ready to host him uh, for a great time. Now, it was crazy, in fact, this getaway palace was fully staffed. There was people there working 24-7, preparing the place, cleaning the entire place, preparing three meals a day, just in case this king would stop by unannounced. Every day they woke up, they got the place ready, they prepared the three meals, they cleaned the entire palace, and they made sure it was perfect just in case the king might return and stop by and enjoy the palace. They wanted it to be perfect for him. So they worked and worked and worked, not knowing when the king would finally return. Now let me ask you this, and this is a question that came up in my mind when I heard Monty tell me this story. What would happen if the king, who, by the way, would only show up maybe once a year to this palace to enjoy all of their hard work. That's a lot of work for the king showing up just once a year, right? Now, what would happen if this king didn't show up for an even longer period of time? Let's say two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years of not seeing the king, the king never going to the palace, not once, how would you think the attitude and the heart of the workers might change during those periods of silence? Nothing from the king. It might change, right? Maybe the workers might start saying, you know what, dude, this, this guy is never coming. This king hasn't been here in 20 years. Why are we still working this hard? Why are we wasting all this food preparing three meals a day? Why are we cleaning so so much and with so much effort if he's never going to come? Maybe, maybe we'll cut down on the cleaning. Maybe we'll just prepare one meal a day. Maybe we'll just, you know, scrap the meals. We won't do any meals anymore. We'll just, we'll make something if he shows up. We won't clean as much anymore. You know, all the staff, you can go home. Like, we, we don't have to keep doing this. And you know what? I mean, this is such a great palace. I mean, maybe we should actually put this to good use, you know? Maybe people would actually enjoy using this place. So here's a bright idea. Maybe we should turn this palace into, you know, some sort of business. Start using it for good. 
So we'll turn these rooms into some businesses and, and we'll invite some more people and we'll actually get this place going and actually useful again. Now what would happen if they did this? Over time, they stop preparing for the king totally. They just focus on this business that's running in their palace. And what would happen after years of years of silence from the king, no show from the king, all of a sudden, the king finally decides to stop by and enjoy his getaway palace for some needed rest. He walks into the palace and he sees that everything has changed. He walks in and nobody recognizes him. What would this king do? How would this king respond? Well, you have already read how he would respond. In John chapter 2, we see the king return to his father's house. King Jesus returns to his father's house, the temple, and the response is incredible. Let's look at this passage in three parts. First, number one, Jesus clears the temple. Jesus clears the temple in verses 13 through 17. Now, what's happening here? The annual Passover is taking place where hundreds of thousands of people are traveling from every which way uh, to Jerusalem where this huge event is happening. What's the event? The Feast of the Passover. Was a, it was a sort of celebration and a remembrance for Israel being delivered from bondage when the Lord killed the firstborn of the Egyptians but passed over the house of the Israelites. Now, do you remember ever learning about this or reading about this? Let's read a little bit in Exodus chapter 12, verses 23 through 27. It says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you and you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised you shall observe this right and when your children say to you what does this right mean to you you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who pass over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. This is an event where people are supposed to come to the temple and remember how the Lord saved his people. This event was made for worship. People were supposed to come and worship and thank and remember all that the Lord has done for them. And so now, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to attend this event like he would do every year. And as he is walking up to the temple, instead of hearing people praying, worshiping God, instead of those sounds, he hears change, jingling. What do you call it? Change, jingling. And change being exchanged and animals being sold. And, and all of this place has been turned into a place of business. 
He hears no prayers, no praises to God from these people. He hears and sees only money being exchanged and animals being sold. You see, these vendors gathered in the temple because they understood a really important business strategy. You know what that is? Supply and demand. It's brilliant. These people are brilliant, actually. Everyone needed, get this, to buy the animals that were being sold in order to slaughter them for the Passover feast and as a sacrifice. Remember, people are traveling from long distances, far away. The travel is brutal. It is long. And so if they wanted to bring their own animals, they really risked them being killed or dying along the long journey. Or even sometimes, because the people in the temple who worked there became so corrupt, even if these people brought their own animals from their own homes, they might show up and the people might reject their animals. Say, uh, this one has too many blemishes. It, it's not good enough. You can't use this animal. So you need to buy one of our animals. These people were corrupt. They understood hundreds of thousands of people were coming in for this event and they needed animals to sacrifice. And so they wanted to be the ones to sell them the animals for an insane amount, uh, an insane price. The other thing was, why are they exchanging money? Because they got so smart that they said, you know, all other currency is no good here. You need to have this specific currency and exchange your currency for ours and we'll exchange it to you at a, a crazy rate, meaning you're gonna lose a lot of money. We're gonna take a lot of money for you. So this is the sacred temple of God turned into a greedy place of business. These vendors and people are showing God disrespect, not worship. So what does Jesus do about it? In his righteous anger and his respect for his father, Jesus proceeds to grab some cords that were being used to tie up the animals. He weaves them together and he proceeds to drive every single person out of the temple. Every single animal out of the temple. Everyone is driven out from his righteous anger as he whips this scourge of cords. Jesus single-handedly drives out thousands of people from his father's temple. Flipping tables, pouring out coins, animals scattering everywhere, people running out. Jesus will not tolerate disrespect and mockery in his father's temple. He loves his father. His whole goal, his whole purpose, his whole sight is to bring his father glory. And when he sees this, dishonoring his father, turning his father's house into a place of business, he acts in righteous anger. He will not allow this mockery from these people. He is outraged by these vendors. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In verse 17. This is a reference to David's psalm in, in Psalm 69 verse 9. It says, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is to say, I, I feel great pain when God is dishonored. 
I am consumed with him. I am only concerned and want nothing more than for God to be glorified. This is how Jesus feels. And this is how every true Christian, every true believer in Christ should feel and act as well. Let me ask you, are you zealous? Do you have a zeal? Meaning this is all you want, all you desire for God's glory. Do you show this when you're at school? All I want to do is glorify God through my schoolwork, through how I interact with my friends, through how I treat my teachers. Do you have a zeal for God's glory in your homes? How you obey your parents? How you treat your siblings? What about when you're all alone with your own thoughts? When nobody else is looking, do you still zeal for God's glory? Do you want nothing more than to see God be glorified by what you are doing, by what you are thinking, by what you are saying? Is your zeal, is your goal, is your desire for God to be glorified? It was Jesus. It was his desire. And that's why he acts in righteous anger when he sees his father dishonored in the temple. Point number two, we saw that Jesus clears the temple and now Jesus replaces the temple in verses 18 through 22. Now the question is, why does God deserve all of this glory? The sweet truth of the gospel is not that not just that we would be forgiven of our sins. If that were the case, that would be grace enough. We would rejoice. We would be so thankful for that. That would be, that would be good enough. But the sweet truth is that unlike every other religion, we worship and have a relationship with a personal God. A personal God. Not just some dictator in the sky ordering everybody around who doesn't care about his people. No, our God is personal. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. And though he was perfect, he was beaten, mocked, and unjustly accused of sins he never committed. The God of the universe decides to humble himself, weep in a cradle in Bethlehem, and hang on a tree on Calvary. On that cross, he took on the full weight of our sin, the wrath of God that we deserved. Then proving that he was God, in order to bring us new life, he raised himself up from the dead three days later. Listen, it would be amazing grace if all this meant was that our sins would be forgiven. But it is so much sweeter than that. Even more sweet much sweeter if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ today and repent from your sins God will not only forgive you he will make you his own Christ died and rose again so that you could know him and have a relationship with him and have direct access to him no longer do you need to travel long distances like these people did for the Passover to worship God. Christ is the new temple. And if you have been saved by him, then you have been united with him. And now you yourselves are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is the sweet truth of the gospel. Look at verses 18 
through 22. Says the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is what we see in Matthew twelve six. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. John four twenty one through twenty six. Jesus with uh, this woman. He says, "Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers." God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus, through his resurrection, is the new temple where sinners meet God. Does that make sense? No longer do you need to go to a physical temple to worship God. If you have been united with Christ, then Christ lives in you. You've been united with him and you can worship him anytime, any place, anywhere. You can have direct access to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Romans 6, 5, we have become united with him. If Jesus was so zealous to see his father glorified in this physical temple, how much more zealous is he to see his father glorified in your temple meaning by what you do by what you say by what you think by how you use your body do you do all things for the glory of god or is his temple being misused number three lastly jesus examines your temple In verses 23 through 25. Many people saw these signs and they believed. But much of that faith would turn out to be fickle and fake. Scorched by the sun, choked out by the weeds. Listen, Jesus knows your heart. You're not fooling anyone. So let me ask you, do you honor God with your lips at church at youth group, in front of your parents, but at home, when you're alone, when nobody's looking, when nobody can know what's inside your your head, do you curse God with your thoughts and your action? Do you dishonor him like these people have? The question is, when the king finally returns, and he will, 
Christ will return again, or when you are finally face to face with the King, after you die, will He say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or will he say, depart from me. I never knew you. What will he say to you? How will he respond when the king finally returns? Will he see his temple, your body, used to glorify his father, used to glorify him? Or will he see it be misused? What will he see? Well, that's it for today's devotional. I have three questions for you. First, why did Jesus clear the temple? What was wrong? What did he see? What was wrong with how they were using the temple? Number two, what does it mean that Jesus replaces the temple? We just talked about that. How does this affect our worship of him? And number three, in what areas of your life do you struggle to bring God glory? Think about those moments or those situations where you just are misusing God's temple and you are not bringing God glory. Identify those areas and how can you better glorify God? We must be zealous for God's glory in every single area of our lives. Okay? So complete those questions and you will be done with day four of the John Summer Challenge. See you tomorrow.